Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. With me, as always, is my co-host, Michael Walker. I am Mark Bigney. How are you, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. How are you? Uh, I was bitten by a bat. I'm currently being treated for rabies. Lucky. Yeah. And the list goes on. <laughs> yes, it's it's been a, it, it was a bad weekend. <laughs> I'm waiting for my mutant superpowers. Dewey has put in uh, votes for what he would like to be transformed into once I become an undead lord, but I don't think that's how rabies works. In fact, I think it's a viral infection that just stra- straight up kills you. So that's boring. It, well, it's relatively pedestrian. On the way, though, you get lo- lovely things like viral hydrophobia. Ooh, we don't even know how that works. I, that'd be cool. The neuropathology of viral hydrophobia is not something well understood. Of course, if I were to experience it, I don't think I would be in a position to explain how it was working. Apparently, you get like violent and angry. That too. I, and I don't understand how we're going to see when that happens to you. <laughs> I've had a number of very helpful phone calls from public health just following up just to make sure that things are going on. <laughs> and do, I know, do you see any foam at, at your mouth? I just know, and, and since I studied this academically, right, I, I, I talked about public health extensively in the courses that I taught. I know that there is a process at the end of which is a man with a gun informing me that I have no right to refuse treatment if I, if I start to, to not play nice in this procedure. Not that I'm inclined to. Anyway. This is a podcast about board games. We're not going to talk about healthcare. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And we're going to talk about our feature game, which is Bullet Heart Symbol ASCII Character. Or is it... I thought it was... I thought it was Bullet Less Than 3. Is that not... (laughs) (laughs) So, the games we played last week. We played an online game of Nidavalier with the expansion Thingvalier. Thing being the... Viking-ish term for gathering place. I don't know what Valir means as a suffix. I probably should have looked that up. But this was my first experience with the expansion. We played it on Board Game Arena. And sure enough, as Walker boasted, it was very, very quick as a uh, as an asynchronous experience, which, generally speaking, I've had bad luck with asynchronous experiences, not just on Board Game Arena, but everywhere. Yeah, not so much quick as, as extremely unpainful. That too, yes. Being able to quickly eyeball what the state of play is. You don't have to remember what you were planning to do. You can just glance at your tableau of little dwarves and, and figure out what, what you're going to do next. I thought it was a great implementation of a very, very simple game, which has been which has had a little bit of difficulty in terms of distribution in the U.S. A lot of people can't get access to it. So this is pretty much a great situation. Like, we, we can't get access to the expansion. The Thingvillier is only available in Europe. So Canadians have easy access to the base game. 
but not the expansion. Americans can barely access anything, so online implementation all around. This is probably one of my favorite blind bidding games. I'm not a huge fan of blind bidding, but it really, see, it, it, near the end of the game, it's less about the bidding and more about tableau construction. And when it comes to a tableau building game, I want things to be very, very quick, and Nadavalier absolutely is, either in person or online. I think it's a lovely, lovely little French game, and the expansion elements are honestly very, very, very minor. So I guess I was a little disappointed in that. Basically, the way the expansion works is there are a couple extra heroes that get added to the mix. And if you win an auction, instead of taking what's available at the place where you're doing the auction, you can instead take something from a separate sideboard of cards that are mostly like the original cards, but a little bit different. So they don't mess with the core formula, which is fine. And I'm happy to play the Davalier now and then. It's a lovely little LFG or a little French game by Serge Leger. What did you think, Walker? Like I said many times before, I love the Davalier and... It works great on Board Game Arena, and as a game, just in on itself, it's very interesting trying to do different tactics. I never do the different tactics. I just do the same Miners thing. all the way down. Miners <laughs> all the way to the bottom. <laughs> and I just can't, like, the game starts, Mark, and I say, okay, this time. This time. This time, I'll do something different, and it comes to my turn, minor. <laughs> Every I, time. I feel the same way, not in the Davalier, but in lots of different games. You can tell, listeners, how devoted Walker is to the Davalier and how fond he is of it, because he has put in the effort... To say the name properly. That's, that's right. It is a dense It is a dense name, and uh, Walker can now actually say it easily. So clearly it is something that has wormed its way into his heart. Moving on. Gugong, Mark, we stream every Saturday at around 10.30 in the morning. Last week we played Gugong, and we played one of the expansions. Yes, from the Penjun expansion. And then we... And then this happens a lot. We talk about what we feel are weaknesses in the game and we're told that we're wrong and then an expansion comes out that you know supplements those weaknesses and it's like well if it wasn't a problem then why <laughs> are they are they changing the game so so once again they've made it so jade is a little easier yep to more sources of cheap jade this is just we just did one of the modules and it was the summer palace one and this which palace summer summer palaces sure summer, summer not palaces but which palace did we use the not winter one. Thank you. I'll be here all week. Uh, unfortunately. Uh, and this so adds sort of three different things you can get from this this summer palace. You can get uh, neutral workers. You can get more jade. Or you can get a... One use double turn. One use double turn of the same action that you did. And it's... And like I said, it just makes the game flow much like, you know, other games that you know, when you say there's not enough resources or, you know, it's hard on the income. So they introduce these things that make it more free flowing. And this, this is what this does. It gives, puts more workers in your pool. Cause a lot of times you maxed out and you wouldn't get all your workers. So now you got these neutral workers, more actions, more Jade. And I, I don't think I liked it. Yeah. So my chief criticism of Gugong, one of the things that I always look for for a Euro game of that rough weight is, does it come together in a relatively focused way? And with Gugong, although it had a very, very clever action selection mechanism, it never really came together in a focused way that I enjoyed. The, the part that I liked most was jockeying for the Great Wall. That part I thought was cool because it at least implicated one of the other tracks, and it was an area majority thing, which I'm always weak to. And... Adding a separate board with new areas does not help in any way with this feeling of it being a sprawling, disconnected thing. It's not too chaotic or too complicated. It just doesn't feel focused. It doesn't feel editorial enough. And honestly, this this is particularly pronounced in, and this is an inevitable problem with lots of expansions, there's a new endgame victory point tile 
that was introduced in our playing of the Summer Palace, and it's completely separate from all the other tiles. And you acquire the tiles in this completely separate area of the board. We all forgot it existed. Now, this probably would have been easier had we been playing in person, but I think it's telling that we all completely thought forgot it existed. I did like some of the timing elements of the Summer Palace. There was this notion about when the various era majority contests would score in the Summer Palace, and that part was cool. But ultimately, I didn't think that it played to Gugong's strengths, and it ultimately just felt like more for the sake of more. It also displayed a little another couple weaknesses in playing digitally. Like a lot of times you're zoomed in, you're not watching what other players are doing. And this happens a lot when you're playing in person. Someone someone does something, you say, oh, what, what are you doing? And they'll say, oh, we're doing this. And then they'll say, oh, no, you don't get to do that right now. And you say, oh, yeah, I forgot, which is what happened in our game. Uh, someone asked about the neutral workers. And I said, oh, you know, do we get them for the whole? They asked, you know, do we put them back in the supply? I said, no, you get them for the whole game. And then because I was looking somewhere else, I just nonchalantly looked over and said, oh, I got some not neutral workers off the board. I forgot to move them on. And that's not how they work, Mark. You still have to pay for them right. like you do your other workers. And of course, other people were looking somewhere else. And had they seen me do that, they would have said, what are you doing? And I would have said, oh, crap, that's right. You know, I wasn't supposed to do that. But anyway, so I cheated, Mark. Long story short. No, cheating Cheating for me implies intent. You made a mistake. So true. <laughs> I still like Ugong. Andreas Stedding, to me, is bordering on a one-hit wonder. The extent to which... Hansa Teutonica is superior to all his other output. Really is striking. He hasn't d- released a whole bunch of games, but really, I, I think it's fair to say you're you're more fond of Gugong than I am. I like Gugong just fine. You seem to prefer it uh, more than I do. But I think it's fair to say they don't. His other output does not hold a candle to Hansa Teutonica. No, when you explained it though, I can see when you're saying it's all over the place. I can see exactly what you're talking about. There's no focus. You're just sort of yeah. just you're looking. It's not. It's not so much, you know, what is the best card I can play right now or what's the only card I can play, but it's almost that. You have to go through a lot of puzzly bits to do what you want to do. Otherwise, it's just playing the card that best suits your turn at that time. That is Gugong. Lovely game, though, and I do like the art, uh, especially the cover of the expansion is gorgeous. It really is impressive. A bit, bit of a shame how often... I don't object to it on moral grounds. I'm not saying it shouldn't be played. I'm a little bit tired of, of white European dudes designing games in the exotic Orient. It's a little tired. It's a little played. Time to move on. Like we said, Andreas Stedding, put out by Game Brewer. I get to play A Billion Suns again. I've been meaning to play A Billion Suns for quite some time. This is a review copy we got from the publisher. And Dewey had expressed some interest. And the Hanverker who is uh, definitely one of the biggest uncredited assets here at So Very Wrong About Games, made two fleets of spaceships and painted them with his 3D printing prowess. And I've been wanting to play a lot of spaceship games, and we actually played two spaceships games this week, uh, Billion Suns and another, which we'll talk about in a moment. And there's even another by Roby Jenkins, Infinite Dark, which I'll probably be playing sometime this week in its beta form, but because it's in beta, I haven't been rushing to it uh, too quickly. But anyway, A Billion Suns, is by Osprey Games, and it's by Mike Hutchison, the same designer as Gaslands. And one of the things that this play really, really highlighted was one of the aspects of science fiction that A Billion Suns really gets to lean into, because you have multiple playing areas that are not adjacent. They're completely separate from each other, and you have these jump points. But ships can jump from a friendly jump point to any other jump point trivially. And so you can deploy a fleet over one sector, go and take care of some mission objectives or possibly have these mission objectives taken away from you and then say, okay, well, I'll just redeploy my forces elsewhere. And what is further cool about this is that your opponents 
can take out your jump points. And that's exactly what Dewey did. Dewey went full bore and destroyed one of my jump points very early on in the game. And what that meant was my ships in that area of space were stranded. And I had to devote considerable resources to get them out again to do something elsewhere. And that part was really, really neat. Another conceit of A Billion Suns that I've talked about before and which continues to impress, although it's beginning to show a couple perhaps rough edges, is the idea that since you are a huge corporation and there's faster than light travel, whenever you need a ship, you just requisition it. You need two destroyers and a dreadnought? Well, then they'll show up at your jump point. Not a problem. So there's no army building, which makes the game easier to teach in that sense. It's a little bit harder for new players, though, because it's basically an auction game. How many ships do I need to buy to accomplish the objectives? This suits very, very nicely with my conservative outlook, and that's one of the reasons why a number of players are expressing some degree of frustration, because if you want to get to the bigger ships, if you want something like a cruiser, or a carrier, well, you're going to have to play a bigger scale game for those ships to ever be worth their cost. But bigger scale games balloon the playing space and the time involved, necessarily. You choose a scale from 1 to 10, which is great flexibility. What I wish would happen... And this is a tabletop miniatures game, so of course there's going to be development over the course of things. I mean, after all, Gasland saw a bunch of free time-extended supplements and eventually the refueled edition. I would love for there to be a way for the stakes to be increased, but the scale not to be increased. For example, I mean, off the top of my head, maybe just things score twice as much as they would otherwise, or three times as much. And that would allow you to get the heavier hitters without necessarily saying, well, instead of having three asteroids you can mine, you have seven asteroids you can mine, which would more than double the playing time or something like that. I thoroughly enjoyed A Billion Suns. Hopping ships from jump point to jump point to reallocate resources in that way was marvelous. You always have different things to do. In this particular game, we were harvesting space kraken hearts. We were curing sick people on uh, derelict ships. And we were patrolling a shipping lane to try to find pirates and then hunt them down once pirates were identified. It was a whole adventure, it seems. It was an entire adventure. And every game, you generate three different sets of contracts. And there's a lot of different contracts. And we're promised that are going to be more to come. So that degree of variety is great. There's a lot of front-end investment that you need because you need to have lots and lots of different kinds of ships and a certain degree of flexibility. We have decided to opt for not modeling specific ships. Like, we don't say, this is a gunship. We instead say, this is these are the ships that we are going to use for all the mass one ships. It could be a gun, gunship. It could be a Corvette. It could be something else along those lines. And we just identify them with either player uh, elastic bands along the base or or uh, a little dongle along the uh, spindle. A dongle along the spindle. A dongle on the spindle. Gotcha. Well, actually, I, I'm actually using stitch markers from, from the knitting hobby, which are these tiny little plastic clips that are meant to clip on to something you're in the process of knitting, but they come in a lot of different colors, but you can just clip them onto the, the spindle, and then you say, this is, this is what this ship is. Anyway, big fan of A Billion Suns, thoroughly enjoyed it. Easy to explain, nonetheless has a lot of texture and a lot of variety from the objective system. Uh, again, I'm going to be trying to explore ways to get bigger ships involved just, just to have that degree of variety because otherwise, and this is not a criticism, mostly you're talking about fighter wings. It's mostly going to be fighter wings and gunships, and that's that's more or less it. Uh, I, I deployed a single Corvette, and that was my big expenditure, but certainly nothing along the lines of a cruiser or, or, or even a monitor ship or anything like that. So it's a very flexible system, and I'm looking, like any miniatures game system, I'm trying to see if I, I can get it to do exactly what I want it to do in the way that I want to do it. But I'm having a good time. Uh, Dewey enjoyed himself. I'm looking forward to future experiences. That was A Billion Suns Interstellar Fleet Battles by Mike Hutchison and Hosprey Games. 
The other spaceship game that Mark alluded to was Star Trek Alliance Dominion War Campaign. This is designed by Josh Dirksen and Thomas M. Gofton. These are the same designers of X-Wing, right? No. Really? No. Wow. No. Wow. Well, in fairness... No this, fairness. No, no. It, and this is put out by WizKids. No, so they licensed the system. WizKids licensed the system for Fantasy Flight, which is more courtesy than Fantasy Flight did to the designers of the Wings of War series when they ripped that off. So, It's true. So what I think this lacks... This, so what we're trying to allude to is this: it's identical to X-Wing. And so you're putting out templates and you're moving these spaceships around. And I really wish it had more of a Star Trek feel, like a more of a crew oriented action system whereas you know in star wars it's all like mostly single crew fighters so i wish there was a little more crew oriented stuff in there it would make it give it more of a star trek feel but all in all i really like how they handled the because it's a cooperative right so you and i played against this this ai sort of dominion ships moving around we had to zoom in and collect some information and try to get off the board unfortunately i was left behind abandoned as it were and then therefore got blown up. I wanted to go back for you, but Riker said, let him fend for himself. I see. It was a whole thing. Uh-huh. Blame Riker. Riker. <laughs> I agree with you. It is strange how little they've done to try to make it feel like Star Trek. It is exactly like X-Wing, which is both good and bad. If you're familiar with the X-Wing system, and, and I've never played attack normal attack wing, the sort of default attack wing. But sure enough, it's a licensed system, and so it works more or less the same way. And... Uh, what I want out of a, a, a ship game of that scale is I'd like to feel like I'm managing a complicated system. And I don't mean that the game has to be complicated. I just like to feel like I'm managing something that's bigger than, as you say, a single crude fighter. So something along the lines of Talon, for example, where you're managing systems and allocating power, things like that. Well, even Flick Fleet gives you, even Flick Fleet, even exactly. Flick Fleet gives you a basic feel of managing systems. Like, exactly. Even if they add something like that. Yeah, no, there are a number of different ways to do it. I, I, I agree entirely. And there, I mean, there's even some things that a billion suns does to give you a sense of scale about the bigger ships. Their mass has some various uh, effects on other ships, both yours and your opponents. The, the big problem that I had with it, and I enjoyed it. It was very quick, 45 minutes, and we were, we were yeah. in and out. And you still got all the joys of, of, of managing the physical templates and all that stuff. Yeah, in the it gave me the ships. feel back of, of uh, the Star Wars, of X-Wing, and I still have all my X-Wing stuff. It sort of gave me that feel I wanted to get it back out again and play again, so love that system. Well, all your stuff is obsolete, Walker. That's first edition it's, X-Wing. It's and, true. It's true. <laughs> setting all that aside, it's a starter set. It's like almost any other product. If you go and you want to play X-Wing, most people understand, or at least most people who've played miniatures games before, know that you can't just buy a starter set and really play the game. You can play something resembling the game, but you can't really play the game. So here what we had was a very small universe of available upgrade cards, and we had one type of adversary. So just as an instance, as an example of this, there are about five pages in the rulebook talking about how cloaking works. No, there's no ships that cloak in in the base game. And this is not a serious objection. I'm not demanding that there there would have been a cloaking ship. But what I mean is, is that part of the joy of these kinds of games is seeing lots of different kinds of ships and playing with upgrades and playing with the right configuration of things. And the AI system was sufficiently good that I wanted to see how it would behave in different kinds of ships. There was a little bit of variety because you would get elite versions of the, the same ship, but it still worked on the same AI script. It did the same actions in the same way, just slightly better. And so what I want to know is, is there going to be more? Uh, you know, I, I, if, if, it, if it were the case, I'd prefer it to be in Star Wars probably because, again, the system feels more Star Wars than it feels Star Trek. 
if there were an add-on pack or something where it's like, here are the AI scripts for all these different ships, I would totally be into that. And I'd be interested in, in, in playing with more configurations and having more adaptations and things like that. But this is a very small subset of a big pool of things. And I don't want to play in the small subset. I want to play in the big pool. So I'm hoping that this is supported, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, we're big boys, and we want to take the water wings off. It's time to go. It's it, Sure. <laughs> so the system was great. I just want to see what it can do. And very much like any other starter set, I did not get a serious impression about what the system can do in the current setup. Because although you are allowed to use a small list of other ships in the game... These are all for player ships, not for AI ships. And you're not allowed to use upgrade cards from the broader Star Trek Attack Wing game in the cooperative version. They're very explicit about that. So I hope that more comes. I'd be really keen if they did some sort of full-fledged X-Wing 2.0 solo and co-op adaptation. I would be willing to consider getting back into X-Wing if they did such a thing. Because, again, I I really liked how the the co-op dynamics worked. And that was Star Trek Alliance Dominion War Campaign. Put out by WizKids. So we played Shassen. Shassen is a game that was kickstarted and put out from an Indian team designed by Zane Memon. Uh, Shassen is an Urdu word meaning governance uh, from the Sanskrit, because that's how Urdu and Sanskrit works. And it is a politically themed game that is fundamentally an area majority contest, whereby at the start of every turn, you are given some kind of political dilemma. And you have to choose yay or nay, and that will influence what kind of resources you get, and perhaps what kind of special powers you will unlock as the game goes on. And there are sort of four paradigmatic political figures that you can seek to emulate. There's the capitalist, there's the showstopper, there's the supremo, and there is the idealist. And so you might have a a sort of hypothetical that challenges you to be either an idealist or capitalist, or the supremo or a pragmatist, or any sorts of things like that. What did you think of Shasin Walker? I I think it's just my jam. I love this game. It is what I like about that type of interaction, like there's all these old computer games called Ultima and they'd ask you all these like moral fundamental questions and they would like sort of mold what kind of character you're going to make. And the fact that, you know, you'd list off these questions and the fact that it impacted your game, you know, depending on how you answered, you'd, you know, have the you know top or bottom of the card and it would give you abilities and or more resources. We felt as though the end game was going to fall apart. And it didn't really, but I'm wondering, we only got to play it once and I'm wondering, like, I really need to see that more plays to see if that plays out the same. I'm hoping that it will not fall apart like it felt like it was going to. So the game really amps up considerably by virtue of the special powers that get unlocked. Effectively, you're kind of sort of building a tableau while you're doing all these other things. And the moment you have three cards of a certain suit, effectively, you get a special power. And then once you get five cards of the same suit, you get another special power. And these really start shaking up the game considerably. And that was effectively why the game didn't stall. In Shasin, the game ends when all the areas have effectively had a majority achieved. And we were worried that there was going to be a back and forth. Sidewinder was looking like she was going to win. And so people started kneecapping her because we needed the game to continue so that someone else would win. But sure enough, by that point, the powers were so great that it was just a function of leveraging all that power that you had to really drag yourself across the finish line, which she was able to do. So there wasn't a whole lot of stalling. And I'm cautiously optimistic that that is representative of how the game will look going forward. The part that I didn't like was that I felt that the, for for one thing, I didn't think that the dilemmas really leveraged much intuitive appeal because they were all solitary and one-offs and they had no sense of of, of, of reverberating 
reverberating throughout the game. So, you know, in turn one, you can blame all the world's ills on refugees, either because you wanted that resource or because you happened to get that by chance or because you happen to hate refugees, in which case you're a terrible person. The next turn, you can say that refugees are the greatest thing ever because that turn you need those resources or whatever. And there's no sense of this lasting from one turn to the next. And perhaps more damning, and this is what really made me feel the comparison unfavorably with King's Dilemma, there was no discussion about any of this. For one thing, we felt that there wasn't time. And because we never really knew why anyone was answering anything any particular way. Is that your genuine belief or are you doing this for game purposes? So... Rather than putting out a motion that we can argue about like would happen in A King's Dilemma, instead it was just, here's a yes-no question, answer it, get some resources, move on. And so ultimately, it, it felt mostly like it was just adding to the downtime. I felt the downtime was very, very bad. And I didn't think that the questions really had a chance to sink their teeth into them, by both by virtue of the fact that you could answer for any one of a number of different reasons, and because they didn't prompt discussion. It's true, but I think if it was more... I, I, I'm glad it didn't go into the King's Dilemma part because then it would just be more like King's Dilemma. This was more board gamey, you know what I mean? It was more sort of area majority, you know, move on to the next thing, you know, sort of get on with it and not bog down. Because if you start out to tracking all that stuff, then it would just lead to more. Well, I'm not suggesting that you just literally take the same volume of issues and handle them roughly analogously to the way you would do in The King's Dilemma. It's just by the end of the game, you've had dozens and dozens of these different yes-no questions, and you can barely remember what happened last round just because of the sheer volume of stuff, and you just get this chaotic noise. Now, is that supposed to be representative of politics? Maybe, and if so, that's a very nice satire of politics, but I don't think it leads to as satisfying a board game. I would just note also that they try to do an admirable job of flagging those questions questions that are potentially hot button. Now, they're all hot button to a certain certain uh, instance. Like, tax policy by itself is not a bloodless area, and people can and do get very, very worked up about it. But they, by and large, I agreed with the author's judgments about which questions deserve to be flagged with the icon of maybe take this out of which weren't. For example, a question about how many refugees you should let in, although very, very important and have tremendous stakes, generally speaking, is not going to provoke the same kind of emotional response as to say a question about gay adoption just off the top of my head, as, as far as issues that, that, that come up. However, they didn't seem to quite understand that it wasn't just the nature of the question, because the answers were all very, very specific, because they had to funnel you into one of these four particular uh, perspectives. And any given policy could theoretically be justified by any kind of perspective. For example, whether, say, say the question is whether or not you want to let in a new group of refugees, which came up a lot in our module. We played the near future module, so we were governing in 2040. An idealist could say, yes, every human being is equally worthy of dignity. We're not in a position to deny entrance based on accident of birth. And the game would say, yes, that is you being an idealist. Here's some idealist resources. But by the same token, they could have said, well, you know, we have to take care of the poor that are already in our country. And we've done such a bad job of marshalling resources to them. It would be somewhat unfair for us to turn our backs on the people who gave us this power in the first place. And you could say that was an idealist. Just as, just as an example. And this is a further indication of how divorced I felt that the questions were from substantive ideology or substantive politics even. And my big objection was sometimes in those answers, they would embed terribly offensive viewpoints. Like, for example, you might have a question about, as we did, this is a mild spoiler, I suppose, we had a question about genetic engineering. And genetic engineering is, to a certain extent, a hot-button issue, but by itself, you can have discussions about 
parental autonomy and child autonomy and what it is, nature versus nurture, etc. But one of the answers for our question about genetic engineering was, yes, we should all engage in genetic engineering so we can wipe out the genetic scourge that is homosexuality. And we're like, whoa, wait a minute. And so we binned that question hardcore. We were not interested in dealing with anyone having to have that as an operable factor. It was not flagged as one of the quote-unquote controversial questions because the question itself was relatively banal in comparison. So, I again, this highlights both how the game, I think, is confused about how it wants to deal with these issues. I did not feel like I had a good set of political or issue-based dynamics after playing Shasen. I felt like I played a slightly overlong, but nonetheless occasionally diverting area majority game. It made me want to play The King's Dilemma. It's true. I agree with that 100%. I also found that some of the powers didn't weren't the same i think some were a little more powerful than the others there was one power that did a swing of six yes. some of the some of the areas the actual area majority was six so like in one play anyway i'm inclined to agree that being said that was shasen yes it was beautiful production though the components were marvelous the whole yeah the whole double air board the whole board double aired the whole area majority part was very interesting we also got to play today Red Cathedral, put out by Devere Games. Mark, what did you think of Red Cathedral? I quite enjoyed it. It didn't do anything spectacularly stunning, but unlike, for example, Gugong, it all came together in a relatively focused way. You were building a cathedral, and there was lots of endgame scoring based on what you were building. And there was a trade-off about whether you wanted to be opportunistic about points during the game and end-game scoring. And to a certain extent, based on the way the scoring works, it was difficult to weigh one against the other. But that was just a first-play problem. Mostly you're just collecting resources and then building cards. There's this weird element of trying to penalize you for claiming things that you're not able to build. Because you can't just go out and build a card. You have to claim the card first, and then later on do an action to build it. And that part was kind of cool, and it implicated a number of other actions. But clearly what the designers wanted it to do, and which would have been good for the gameplay, is to penalize you for being too ambitious, about claiming too many things too quickly. Well, I thought about this today, and I think it's more the fact that we're all, everything's getting built. It's not as though the roof gets built and it's just floating in midair. Everything's getting built. But you work so hard, you got that built first. And they looked down the line and they said, look, he's got that done. You're not even done yet. Why aren't you finished? And then therefore you get penalized. Well, but number one, the penalty is completely athematic. You are penalized for having claimed a lower section of the cathedral when a higher section is completed. This is absurd. I don't see why for any gameplay purpose you couldn't have had it exactly reversed because that's the part that makes sense. Because you didn't build the foundation when you finished the minaret? Like, furthermore, I wanted the penalty to be more biting. I thought the penalty was a little bit minor, and so it didn't really have a serious effect on the tempo of the game. It was mostly just, oh, well, okay, I I guess I better go take care of this, rather than a palpable sense of risk. I'm going to go claim this very valuable real estate, even though I don't entirely know how I'm going to finish it yet, even though I know that might bite me later. And in point of fact, it was just a mild inconvenience occasionally. So... Uh, relatively pedestrian. Uh, there was this weird rondelle with dice that was kind of cool, but a little lucky. It was, I was just about to talk about that. Overall, the game had very interesting timing elements. It's like you could see what 
what resources people had. You could see what they're going for. You could sort of piece together, well, I can get this before they get it so I can. And then the dice come up and it's like, no matter what I can do, I can't get the gold I need. And it's like, oh, someone rolled a die. They get the gold and I'm beat out. So I agree 100% with Wade. The player to your right can just randomly throw the dice and it doesn't affect their turn. It affects your turn. And so you wanted very particular results to come up. And once you take advantage of those results, they go away. And as far as a way to control semi-random input of resources, it was okay. But it just felt a little too swingy for my taste, especially since the combinatorics, especially in the early game, could be very, very consequential. So, But I have to say, it was uh, relatively brisk, relatively focused, engaging Euro game of resource management. And I will just give a, a minor note of congratulations for the very teeny box. And I like it when you're going to get a meaty Euro game in a teeny box. Yeah, and it has two different modes. You can play baby poo face mode sort of get people, you know, into the game, or you can play... The grown-up version? The grown-up version, as we did. And I like I like it. I'm looking forward to playing it again. That is Red Cathedral. We finished our campaign of Pandemic Legacy Season Zero. If you have been following along on our patron-exclusive show, The Cure Files, you'll be hearing the full-of-spoilers summary of what has been going on. But in terms of a spoiler-free recap, I thought it would be useful, having played all 12 months over 14 sessions, to talk about our general impressions of the game. What do you think about Pandemic Legacy Season Zero, Walker? I think it was it was very interesting. Uh, I know this, the writing was terrible, but just the overall feel of the story was, you know, semi-interesting. I feel they leaned a little bit hard into one character constantly throughout the throughout the game. But other than that, I enjoyed the fact. I don't know, maybe that's spoiler. I was enjoying the fact that you could customize your character. Yes, there were a number of cool moments. Nothing quite so cool as that first time you play Risk Legacy, you open up a box and there's an entire new faction that shows up out of nowhere on the board, complete with new sculpts of plastic miniatures. I don't think I'm ever going to replicate that joy with a Legacy game. Sorry, spoilers for Risk Legacy. But <laughs> at a certain point, you you sort of, there's a sunset clause with respect to spoilers. I can talk about, you know, the usual suspects in Risk Legacy, I think. Well, maybe tell them they're not going to get that. Could be a spoiler. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I didn't say you didn't. Yeah, so the, I didn't get that same you sense didn't get of the joy. Feeling. I I spoiled it. You, yeah, good job, Walker. <laughs> anyway, yes, you were not going to get a risk faction in your game of pandemic like a season true. zero. <laughs> You're right. No, I have this written down too. And and finishing something is not you know something to to you know scoff at. It there's a lot of campaign boxes on my on my wall of shame, as they say, that just don't get finished or don't get played a lot. And this is a game that is now 100 percent completed, and it's. It's nice. I only finished it because it was very clear that Dewey and, to a certain extent, Huey and, to a certain extent, you were keen on it. Left to my own devices, I would not have finished it. I didn't think that the system played to its strengths. They did do some interesting things to mix up the pandemic formula, but they didn't lean on them heavily enough. It felt repetitive. It felt like a bit of a grind. I didn't think that the story beats were enough to keep me engaged. I didn't think that the new mechanisms were employed enough to keep me engaged. Well, and there was one that was employed, and we thought it was great, and then they leaned double down on it, and it was like, okay, wow. Yeah, yeah. More details to follow in the Cure Files, of course. Ultimately, I and, – and every time they would do something, either narratively or mechanically, I – and I normally don't see this. I could think of half a dozen different ways where they could have with without – having to engage in any any fancy components, lean into a little bit more to an experience to my taste. As it was, it felt a little bit slapdash, which is strange considering how long this franchise has been going on. 
And I, I'm still waiting for something to, 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 to really grab me in the legacy format the way it did at first, because ultimately it still feels like a novelty. Would I rather play Pandemic Fall of Rome? I would. Would I rather play Pandemic on the Brink? Yeah, probably. And that's that's not awesome. I, I, just, I just wish they had done a little bit more. They'd leaned into it a little bit more. It was all right. I don't regret the time I spent playing. I, and, and to be sure, there are lots of games I just wouldn't agree to play 14 times in a row, regardless of how enthusiastic people were. But, you know, to a certain extent, I was doing it as a perfunctory obligation. Yeah, and I don't think... If it's another legacy game and it's Pandemic, I think I'm going to pass. I, I'm just... I've already said this in the in the past. I'm done with Pandemic, and I just <laughs> I don't want to do it anymore. I'm not done with Pandemic. I want to go back to the... As I say, the, the versions of Pandemic that I, I, I prefer. Oh, yeah, well, I'm... Like you said, the fall of Rome is so different and, and it does other things that are interesting. I just met the same sort of like milling that deck and, yeah. and trying to get cards. I'm just, sure. I'm done. <laughs> Fair enough. And those are the games we played this week. On to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, I've ta- already said in the past I love the Dragon Prince. They've announced another game. Not only the role-playing game, but now there's going to be sort of a miniature skirmish game. It's called the Dragon Prince Battle Charged. And you'll be able to pre-order it in June. The sculpts look amazing, although they're obviously, you know, computer rendered at this point. But still, and it looks it looks awful. It looks very much, you know, here's a small deck of cards. Move your guy around and do your do your uh, minor attacks. But you know, it it has the IP and hopefully it gives you that you know sort of feel. And there's like eight characters to start with, so maybe it'll be halfway good. I will find out because I will be getting it. Deadpool joins the Unmatched universe. We played Unmatched a couple of times. I love Deadpool. I think I'd, I'd play it again just so I could play Deadpool and Unmatched. You know, the thing that I liked the most about Unmatched was that it wasn't married to any kind <laughs> of IP. to Marvel. And that, la- I mean, they already crossed that bridge when they went into Jurassic Park and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, people swear up and down that Unmatched is brilliant. And I think they also swore up and down that it's brilliant on the strength of games that were not the original intro set. I think it's one of those Babylon 5 things where it's like, oh, yeah, season one is trash. Nobody likes season one. You have to go through it so you can get to season two. And so if I were presented with an opportunity to play Cobble and Fog, for example, which is, again, a set that a lot of people uh, really, really are enthusiastic about, or Beowulf. I would definitely play as Beowulf versus Little Red Riding Hood. That part was cool. But honestly, the, the, the game we played, it was an intro set where... Everyone acknowledges that one of the four characters, if not in balance, definitely has a harder road to hoe. And I didn't feel that there was a, lots of good hand management. It was just play the card you got and, and hope for the best. I want to like Unmatched. Unmatched is totally my jam, but didn't didn't grab me. So Reiner, Marvel's not, And Marvel's not and, the way yeah, to that, get me back that in. Didn't, that did not help. So Reiner Knizzi is not slowing down, Mark. Nor should he. Nor should he, really. And But, but that being said, uh, some of his later... Uh, some of his previous output has been just sort of uh, smaller games off of ideas from his from his previous Absolutely. work. Absolutely. Iterating on previous work, yes. Exactly. But now we've seen there are two games coming out. They seem like they're going to be very big box games. Looking forward to them. One is called The Siege of Rundar. It's it's being trumpeted as ghost stories. Oh. Sort of like a, a tower defense or defend, defending a... Defending a place called Rundar, apparently. And the other one that we've looked at is Witchstone. Both of these games look amazing. Looking forward to them. And Witchstone is a rare collaboration for the Doctor. Yes. 
Also, under Reiner Knizia News, he, there is apparently going to be a reprint of Blue Moon under some aegis or other. Someone contacted Reiner Knizia's team uh, inquiring about the status of Blue Moon, and they were informed that the rights had been sold to a new publisher, and so there might be a new edition sometime in the offing. I am always willing to buy Blue Moon again. Over and over. Anytime it gets published, I will buy it again. So, three quick things from Kickstarter. Longshot. Longshot is like a horse racing game. They are coming out with a sort of roll and write. I looked into it, read the rules a little bit, watched some vids, as those kids are saying. No time to say video. Gotta gotta be efficient. That's right. If you can be one thing, it's efficient. Longshot the dice game. Looks very interesting and fun. I haven't backed it yet, but I have put a notice. I'll take another look at it and see. Googly-eyed dice, Mark. Have you looked at these? No. Well, we've seen the the little rubber ducks inside the dice yes. and all these other. Now they have the little you know shakeable googly eyes inside your your. Very your, nice. Yeah, it's very amazing. And that's and, not in long shot, I assume. What's that? That's not for long shot. Not I for long shot. This is its own <laughs> little. And then something that sort of in all my searches never came up. I just sort of fell on it today. I don't know why it's not being trumpeted a little bit more. Mythic Battles Ragnarok. Yes, is, is, launched is, today. Is, launched is it? Oh, it must be short then. Yes. I see. Because when I, when I went to it today, it only had like 14 days. I didn't realize it was a shorter short, campaign. Short campaign. Ah, yeah. short campaign then. Okay. I was disappointed to see that Tier was a stretch goal, but it was an early stretch goal because you can't get me to show up if Tier's not involved. I've been very, very clear about this. In an obvious cash grab, Heimdall and Odin are not in the base pledge. They're in an add-on expansion, which seems suspect. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I, I I have views about Norse mythology, as has been made very clear. And you can get add-ons involving both Jormungand and Nidhogg, which is great because I, I want... Yeah, I've pledged for it. <laughs> I'm a fool. It's expensive, but the Mythic Battle system is really good. It's super niche. It's a two-player only. Yes, you can play with multiple players, but don't. I like the card system. I like the way the special abilities work. Yes, the, the the company has been a little bit dodgy. Their fulfillment's been a little all over the place. But honestly, it's a quality product by the time everything is said and done. And so I'm willing to engage on this ridiculous ride because of my enthusiasm for the, the game system and because of my enthusiasm for Norse mythology. And our enthusiasm for two-player skirmish games. Absolutely. There are going to be expansions to two of Level 99 games Namely, Bullet and Imperial. Bullet is something we're going to be discussing in a few minutes. Imperial Spells and Steam is something we reviewed a few months ago. The expansion for Bullet is going to be uh, on their special non-Kickstarter pre-order system, which is going to be especially helpful for people outside the United States because the Level 99 web store does not want to ship to you if you don't live in the United States. Oh, they'll do it. But uh, it's not going to be worth the money. So this is going to be a special pre-order program where they can actually send shipments to different local hubs that'll save things the imperial expansion there's gonna be a new mini expansion when they kickstart the reprint so the base game and the big expansion as above so below as well as this mini expansion for imperial is are going to be kickstarted soon and we are looking forward to seeing that and i'm looking forward to seeing new content for imperial and for people who want to get access to it still a very luxury product but it's that's precisely the kind of thing that kickstarter is good for And that is good news for Level 99. I'm a big fan of the company, and I like how they support their games. And on the notion of supporting Imperial, I just want to give another little shout-out to the Little Plastic Train Company, which very shortly is, possibly by the time you hear this, is going to be having its Kickstarter for five beautiful sets of Little Plastic Trains. See, they decided to name their company in a way that people would know what they were 
they were trying to do, right? So we have been playing with the Mercury set whenever we play Imperial and indeed any game that will take plastic trains. And we are massive fans. They are gorgeous. And so I'm definitely going to be ponying up for a full set, even though I don't really do a whole lot of gaming with plastic trains. It's just because they're so cute. They're nice. So usually when games are re-released, they're put out under the same name. Or sometimes when games are released, they're they put out with, you know, games of names with popular, like Terraforming Mars, the card game, you know, they pull off or, you know, uh, of the West Kingdom or whatever. So, you know, so they sort of, you know, feed in on that thing. But very seldom are games so bad and disliked that they completely change the, the <laughs> name completely in hopes that people will forget on how terrible the game is. Enter For the King and Me, which is the reprint of Biblios. Yes, they are rightfully ashamed of having produced Biblios, so naturally you have to bury that shame under a new title. Agreed. That is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to our feature game, which is Bullet. Bullet Heart Symbol. Walker, please, the full title. Bullet Less Than Three. Bullet Heart Symbol was designed by Joshua Van Lanningham and published by Level 99 Games. This is a review copy we got from the publisher. Joshua Van Lanningham has uh, only one other design credit, and that is having co-designed the Collusion expansion to Millennium Blades, also published by Level 99 Games. And this is meant to be a sort of evocative of a shoot-'em-up game or a bullet hell game or specifically a subgenre of the shoot 'em up genre. By the way, the official term for this is shmup, which is an which is a word that I hate almost as much as I hate the word deluxified. So I use it only reluctantly. Known as the cute 'em up. A cute 'em up is a game where instead of piloting some sort of space fighter or World War II fighter case depending in in the Capcom's 194X series, kind of like train games but different. You control some sort of magical girl who navigates a series of bullets. Now, I'm a huge fan of shoot-em-up games. Some of my favorites are Donpachi, a very obscure game called Change Air Blade. Shout out to all my Change Air Blade fans out there. The Gradius series, of course, as well as Parodius. I love Parodius. As well as Darius. If you want to shoot a giant mechanical fish, Darius is absolutely the way to do it. Anyway, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Bullet Heart Symbol? So even though this is uh, based off of a, a, a scrolling shooter, it plays more like a Candy Crush or a Double Bubble or a Bejeweled, what they call tile-matching games, except you're not actually matching uh, shapes or colors. Instead, you get a small deck of templates that are catered to your own character and who has unique abilities, and you have to use timing and action points to get the most out of your cards and you better be fast because the clock is ticking and now you're dead <laughs> yes i i think you're quite right to immediately identify that it doesn't feel much like a shoot 'em up at all because you are stationary in fact you're not represented at all and these bullets just cascade down and what you do with your action points is you move the bullets around you don't spend your action points moving yourself around to do things with one exception there's one character who is represented on the board all the character differentiation is very good more on that later but it so as a result as a fan of shoot 'em ups i was somewhat disappointed that it didn't really feel like that i agree with you that if you want to make the analogy to video games those sort of pattern tile matching games are the better comparison Yep, but be, that being said, I think we both enjoyed this very much. There are two modes to this game. There's the co-op mode where you're all, where you're fighting against the boss, or there's the versus mode, which is timed, where you're uh, trying to match the, these things are cascading down, more like, like you just said, more on that in a bit. And the more you clear, the more you're handing off to your opponent, and therefore they've got more bullets to deal with, 
and it's very hectic. And if you like that kind of game, then it's for you. It's really striking how much the two modes feel different. There's also a score attack mode, but it's just a solo kind of how long can you last before being overwhelmed mode. It also is not timed. And in my original preparations for the game, this was true both on Tabletop Simulator when it was released in advance of the release and in the physical version, I was always surprised at how completely unengaged I was by the untimed versions, whether I was playing solo against a boss or playing the score attack mode or even when playing with other people. Like, yeah, you look over and say, can I help anybody or can someone give me some help with this action because there are these special co-op actions that you can do when you're playing cooperatively against a boss. And some of the bosses are mechanically interesting. But at the end of the day, no matter what mode you're playing, it is about spending a limited pool of action points to arrange your threats in such a way that you can trigger these pattern cards that you have. And when it is untimed, I am happy to go through the motions, but it just doesn't grab me. I don't know whether this is my traditional dislike of spatial puzzles, or just because I don't really feel much pressure. It just doesn't feel any sense of urgency. I'm just going through the motions and lining up these things and, and pinging something, and then they go off elsewhere, and okay. It's true, and I was, I was talking about it earlier, I think if I had not played the timed version earlier i would not have liked this co-op either just the fact that i had a sort of a sense of urgency because i played the timed versus mode i knew you know at this hectic you know get cards clear these do it fast and just because i sort of had that in the back of my back of my head i just sort of it made it click a little bit better but i can see if you jumped right into just sort of okay here we go <laughs> and you sort of like just puzzle it out it would not be as fun because there, there's all these different resources and decisions to triage that immediately become engaging for me in the real-time version and don't strike me as, as at all engaging in the, in the untimed version. For example, you have to decide when to perhaps suboptimally trigger a pattern. Ideally, every pattern can clear some number of bullets. And sometimes you clear them and everything works out great and you clear the maximum number and you feel very, very efficient. Sometimes you're forced by exigencies to clear them prematurely or you're not able to, to, to do it to maximum effectiveness. And ultimately, when doing it real time, I always feel like I'm under the gun and I never know whether I'm making the right decision because time is another point of scarcity. So interleaved with all this is the actual input of threats, pulling out more bullets to put onto your board. And so you're constantly swapping back and forth in the real-time version between arranging things to score, deciding when to score, pulling out more bullets, trying to figure out how much time you have all this. When it's untimed, I don't feel any of this. And it's just, well, I'll pull some out. Oh, I can complete the pattern now. All right, I'll spend to complete the pattern. Yeah, now. and it has this very interesting push your luck. It's like your board is filling, and it's like, okay, if I can just get this yellow, or if I just get this one tile that I need to like sort of links this all together, this will be great. So you keep pulling bullets, and it, it sometimes works out, usually doesn't, but I, <laughs> I love that. And we talked about fulfilling these templates, because I want to go back to that, because every Absolutely. there's tons of characters, and each one has different decks of templates, and the way they've used these cards to make each one feel different is incredible. And, and they're all very interesting. It's not as though, you know, they're all just different shapes or something, yep. but the way they manipulate the bullets, either pushing them or pulling them, or have little target uh, things that you move around the, the table, or like you said, one of them actually has that, the person. Their representation, their representation on the board. Is on the board. I think they did a great job. 
And then levered into that is the fact they all have special abilities, too, that are all different as well. In classic level 99 fashion, there's a lot of character variation and texture. And it's one of those things where if you initially just look at the special powers, you might figure, well, this seems relatively minor. But it's mostly about their own unique deck of cards, their own unique patterns. And some characters, their special power is directly related to that. Some aren't. But in any case, you're going to get tremendous variety. And there's tremendous room for personal preferences. I played a character that I thought was completely useless. And Dewey did very, very good work with her. Similarly, there was a character that Dewey tried that he didn't really like, I thought was amazing. And, you know, more very fun to use and very effective. And so I really do admire how much personality Level 99 is able to imbue in their various characters. I also want to give a brief mention that I think, not that I'm the final arbiter on this uh, and anything, it's an all-female cast, which is often in video games or board games a red flag. But in this case, I can say they don't strike me as sexualized. They don't strike me as... Uh, being deprived of agency in a lot of traditional male gaze representations are. And so you get to do a, 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 a you get to do an homage to games like the Toho Project and the other cutem ups without at the same time engaging in sometimes the unfortunate tropes in a lot of video game related media. Yeah, like I have that as well here. Great art, very tasteful. The components are fantastic. We were lucky that we it's a we had like the deluxe. It's chips, the deluxe version with set. with wooden uh, bullets instead of cardboard bullets. Yeah, I don't. I'm think it might lose its charm if you're like pulling the cardboard out and sliding them around. I really think that the the wooden tokens really add to the game. It's not as fun. Not I've as- I've tried manipulating the cardboard components. It's not as good. I really think that if you have the option of of either one, then you should definitely go for the deluxe version. Now, this being said, we did have a little, there is a little bit of a color problem. Yes. There is a a red and a purple that is listed on the sheet, but the tokens are more... Pink. Pink. But even in the rule book, they show them as pink as well. So it really wasn't a, a like, sort of like a, a misprint or anything like that. I just think they just got them too close. I think it's mostly a problem with the board. The board was printed on a black background, and so it ends up looking uh, very, very purple. This has caused some misplays and some confusion amongst new players, so it's a thing you have to flag, which is really the indication that it's problematic. It's not just a case of, well, looking at it, this might be a problem. It's a problem that manifested itself during actual play, so it is unfortunate in that sense. has some power-ups as well. Not only do you have your starting abilities, but as you go through the levels... You get to pick new abilities that go on your sheet. Again, only in the versus mode. Only in the versus mode. Yeah. No, sorry. I I, I emphasize this because it really feels like the co-op modes, it's kind of like a three steps backward, uh, three steps forward, two steps backward type of situation because every character can be a boss. And every character is a unique boss and similarly has a unique deck of cards and unique mechanisms. But at the same time, you don't have the time pressure. You don't have uh, the satisfying element of the new power-ups. And so in a bizarre way, you feel like you're playing half the game. Or at least a lot of the stuff that I liked was gone. Now, I mentioned this previously when talking about the game before, about trying to play the co-op version or the solo version timed. And so I played against a boss using a three-minute timer. And I will say it made me feel like it was a lot more like the core game, a lot more like the game that I enjoyed. It was brutally hard. It was incredibly difficult, but I'm not particularly good at games like this anyway, so that's not a a tremendous criticism. And if I really wanted to balance it, I could probably extend the timer out to four minutes or four and a half if I were really inclined to do that. Yeah, and the other great part about it is not only is it timed and gives you this sense of urgency and stress, 
but it escalates with every turn, right? Your board starts to fill up more. It's not as though you clear it every round. It's like, okay, this is what I got left. Now I got another full bag of more bullets that I got to put in, more discs, and then your opponent's clearing more, and they're handing you more discs. So it's this constant, you know, build up to the end, and that's what you know, makes games more fun. Absolutely. When there's that degree of pressure, when there's that degree of impetus, I absolutely agree that's when it's at its best. Unfortunately, though, and this is another minor downside, so it, it's clear that my preferred mode is the versus mode, and I have a lot more fun in the versus mode than any other mode. Well, actually, in both the versus mode and the co-op mode, there's player elimination, and that's not hot. And it's reasonably balanced. Like, there's no A, ganging up, a and B ganging up on C problem because you can't target who you want to. You're always targeting the player to your left. And... If you happen to be seated next to a weaker player to start with, that's only going to buy you a little bit of time anyway. And it's a quick game. But whether someone's sitting out for two minutes or 20 minutes, it it, make, it it doesn't sit well as a game host to have someone not play the game. Yeah, and there was a little bit of fiddliness, you know, for end game scoring. Like, you know, when you go out, make sure you, you know, you keep your board and then count the tiles. And even if... You know, you died first, you could still win because you had less tiles. Yes. It's sort of a little bit fiddly, but not terrible, really. Yeah, when, the, the, you, when the, you think about it, it makes sense, but it just doesn't feel right. It makes sense, but it feels unsatisfying to, to lose, even though you're, you had mostly cleared your bag for the round, and so you feel like you'd progressed further. But the tiebreaker condition is whoever has the fewest bullets on their board when they died, regardless of how many bullets they had in their bag. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. It makes sense, and it works, but... Given how often early play is going to be decided by tiebreaker, you know, early gamers that haven't really mastered the systems yet, their their first few playings, it is a little bit weird sounding and a little bit weird feeling. The other thing I thought was, you know, not fun, but fun and stressful and interesting is when when the timer runs out and you still have tokens in your bag. <laughs> so now you got so you, you can't just say, well, I'm going to stop and leave these tokens in my bag. No, because the timer runs out. Now you just have to draw them and let them fall down on your on your board, and there's nothing you can do, and you just have to see as well. Am I going to survive? Am I going to be you know have a nice nice full chunky board next round? It is great. A lot of real time games don't have a good sense of tempo, which is strange. But I find that Bullet is even uh, its tempo is arguably even better than something like Galaxy Trucker. Because Galaxy Trucker, if you forget to do something, you just forget to do something, and then you get whacked for it later on. But Bullet rounds end tend to end rather rather satisfactorily because well, I've exhausted all my energy, I've completed all the patterns I can do, I've, I've, I've done what I can do, and or you run out of time and then you get to have that lovely bit of tension where you're just pulling bullets out of the bag and there's nothing you can do about it. I really do enjoy that part. I'm just going to go back to what you just said was the energy. You use this energy to use your abilities and the other interesting part is that some of the bullets that flow down have these stars on them. So it is part, there is a strategy of manipulating those, try to get rid of those, because whenever you eliminate a star, it gets you more energy back, which, you know, lets you do more things. And I thought that was a very, you know, unique way to do things. There's also a surprisingly high skill ceiling for Bullet. It's a very simple game, it's very quick, it's very approachable, but at the same time, there's lovely little bits of nuance that reveal itself after subsequent plays. Like, for example, looking at what your opponent's board looks like and realizing what color really hurts them. You know, their green is almost all full up, and so you figure, oh, well, maybe I should clear these two greens instead of just, you know, three random colors because that's really going to hurt them. About prioritizing stars and prioritizing the timing of the stars, about prioritizing when you use which abilities when, not just about clearing everything as soon as you can. And there's There were lovely little bits of discovery as you get into the system, and I, I quite appreciated that. Yeah, and the fact that 
you get three patterns at the top of your board when you start and this whole deck. So as you clear, as you clear them, you don't get to do the same pattern over and over again. So you have to discard that, pay more energy to get more patterns up so you can clear more. And this sort of like trying to manipulate everything while the timer's going, loved it. I will say that I'm a little bit concerned on occasion with level 99's art direction because I want to analogize back to a previous product line of theirs that I kind of like, but you never really enjoyed, and that's uh, Battlecon Exceed. The reason why I never started with the Exceed line was because the first product they launched in Exceed was Red Horizon, and the art for Red Horizon was embarrassingly bad with respect to its representation of women. And so every time as a result, perhaps unfairly, when Level 99 comes out with a product, especially one that mod- apes itself after video games, I'm like, okay, well, what's what's the deal here? Because as you know, for me, especially recently, it's a deal breaker. If the art's embarrassing, if I don't think it, if if, if, if I would be embarrassed to see it, then I don't want to engage in the gameplay, regardless of how good it is. Again, this is not a virtue thing. This is just about what, as a consumer, I want to spend money on and what I want to play with. And so when Bullet came out, I was very, very, very happy because... Things like this can always go wrong. And then there's the art for the expansion. There's going to be an expansion called Bullet Orange. Not Bullet Heart Symbol, but Bullet Orange Symbol. And there, speaking personally, it's the step too far. It's an arguably sexualized representation of 14-year-old schoolgirls. And at that point, no, I'm out. I'm just not not keen on that. I don't think that that's... It's the same artist. This is the same... This is commissioned art. It's licensed from a different video game property, but this is art that was commissioned and produced by Level 99. I hope that if they continue to support the bullet line, they don't do that and they lean back into the art direction of the base game because I'm not a fan of how they've modeled the the expansion characters for what it is worth. Unfortunate. It is unfortunate. So I enjoy bullet in the real-time competitive version even though it's not really my bag, generally speaking, no pun intended, and even though uh, the player elimination is still something I'm not a huge fan of. But honestly, it's quick, it's delightful, it's got a lot of character differentiation, a lot of character, and a lot of heart, no pun intended. (laughs) If you enjoy real-time games, and it's becoming increasingly clear to me that I really do like real-time games, and it's a great way to add tension and engagement... The paradigmatic example, again, is Pendulum, which I think is the most pedestrian and boring worker placement game ever, but I'll happily play it because the real-time element adds that level of pressure and engagement. And Bullet is more engaging than Pendulum, and once you add that tension and the stress, it's really great. I will also note that just in terms of publisher support, they have a soundtrack available. There's a a three-minute-long track, which is the timer for every character, which is a lovely little touch and gives a little bit more personality to the individual characters and to the stages. And it really shows that Level 99 is a publisher that really knows how to support a product. And I, I, I've, I've really been pleased, aside from a couple of their art direction missteps, I really think that whenever they put something out, it's something to watch. And they've been very consistent. Agreed. I really enjoy it. Like you said, bring it out at the, you know, before or after a game or, you know, to get you hyped up for, for gaming night. It's very, I'm not going to say easy to teach, but it's not too difficult to learn. And I love real-time games. And it has a little bit of dexterity and, you know. Well, every real-time game is arguably a little bit of a dexterity game. <laughs> and, well, yeah, keeping everything in order and, you know, trying to, you know, remember how your character works and how templates work and and trying to memorize your deck quickly so you know what cards are coming up so you know to cycle it quickly to get the cards you need. I'll play it anytime. Love Bullet. 
Well, thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.